The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4,281 of the Bugle audio newspaper for a visual world, albeit an audio newspaper in which you can't trust what you hear for a visual world in which you really shouldn't believe what you see. Don't shoot the messenger, um, or indeed don't shoot anyone, just as a general piece of life <laughs> advice. Uh, I'm Andy Zaltzman, the undisputed champion of disputing things. Oh, no, I've just lost my title by saying that. Uh, I'm here in London, or as the Romans called it, that was the Romans before they founded London, um, after they uh, invaded our God-given Britishly British land in 43 AD. Thank you, Brussels. Hashtag take back control. And I'm joined today from San Francisco, <laughs> a city which escaped Roman colonisation by a mixture of luck, geography, non-existence at the time, and exorbitant property prices. Joining me uh, from there, NATO Green. Welcome back, NATO. Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. Uh, how's uh, how, how have you been since you were last, uh, last on <laughs> a few happy weeks ago for this planet? Uh, miserable, uh, oh. uh, uh, alternate jags of uh, uncontrollable sobbing and binge drinking. <laughs> I did. I did discover something, Andy. Uh, I was, you know, I, be, politics is so stupid, and we end up having to write about the same things again and again. And so, uh, do you have this experience where you're like, did I write this joke already? And so I went back. I was going went back to listen to older bugles to see if I had done a joke already. And I was switching between a few episodes. Do you know how like DJs will crossfade between <laughs> records? Yeah. And I realized that if you start any Andy Zaltzman joke in the history of the Bugle, and at the at some point switch to any other Andy Zaltzman joke, it will still play. <laughs> uh, so Chris could remix the entire Bugle back catalog by just splicing Andy setups and punchlines together in a free-for-all manner, and it would still sound like Andy. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's good to know that I've got such uh, incredible theatrical <laughs> range. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, also joining us uh, on The Bugle for the first time, so bringing something fresh to this, well, evidently is a tired old format, uh, someone I gigged <laughs> with for the first time literally a millennium ago, or at least in a different millennium. Uh, uh, well, warm welcome to the Bugle to Alistair Barry. Hello, Al. How are you? I'm very well, my friend. How are you? Very good. So, uh, welcome to the show. I, I, I feel slightly awkward that uh, we've got one guest coming from the glamour of San Francisco, and I uh, am, am speaking to you from the Holiday Inn Express hull, which is attached <laughs> to a large multi-storey car park. Um, levels of glamour that Alan Partridge would would genuinely uh, look down upon. Right. Um, I, I must say, I very much like what. NATO said about your jokes, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I've always been a very, very big fan of your, uh, of your, of your wordy introductions of your, especially when we used to do political animal um, and those very long. I've always thought you could actually do twenty minutes off stage just splicing your yeah. introductions together and actually not bother with the gig at all. Yeah. So uh, I think I think we've spotted an opportunity. Uh, there. Yeah, I mean, if only I'd done that during my my brief, not particularly successful club stand up career, then I think my twenty minute set would have gone a lot better. <laughs> We are we are recording on the 17th of November 2023. On this day in 1810, Sweden declared war on the United Kingdom, thus beginning the Anglo-Swedish War, one of my all-time favourite wars. It raged uh, from November 1810 until July 1812, and when I say raged, it raged like a bench in the park. No fighting ever took place, no one was killed in it, and trade between the two countries continued largely unaffected. Why can't all wars be like that? 
but there were still surely English people making jokes about having five weapons left over at the end of the conflict. <laughs> I mean, sure, the films the films wouldn't be so exciting, but uh, and maybe the poetry wouldn't reach reach such heights. But other than that, that sounds like the ideal blueprint for a war. See, this seems like a very like Swedish thing. Yeah, uh, that just so that that they would have have a war and not show up like like sweden <laughs> seems to be really committed as a nation to not doing war effectively uh like <laughs> to non-commitment they, they they like they have in stockholm there's a giant museum of the vasa museum have you been there oh, of, yes. like their greatest yep. warship yeah, yeah. that they like built to defeat their enemies and then immediately sunk yeah <laughs> i mean it lasted us i think about 20 minutes didn't it um <laughs> Longer than your club day. <laughs> oh, no, 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 NATO. They went on far longer than twenty minutes at these club days. As always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin this week. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, to mark the launch of the new Ridley Scott blockbuster Napoleon. Um, featuring Joaquin Phoenix, we ask uh, some searching questions about Napoleon, including, did Napoleon actually exist? Or, like Maximum's Decimus Meridius in uh, Gladiator, uh, also uh, featuring Joaquin Phoenix and directed by Scott, um, uh, did Ridley Scott just make him up? Uh, it's, I mean, it's quite possible, isn't it? He's got a bit of a track record for it. Uh, Maximum's known as Maximum's, of course, because of his remarkable consistency throwing 180s when playing darts. Uh, also, we ask, if Napoleon had <laughs> invaded Russia from the other end, in 1812, would he have been any more successful? And the answer, no. Uh, also, we asked, could the rumours be true that uh, Nappy, as he was known by his mates, escaped from exile on St Helena before his alleged death in 1821 and is now making a living in Vegas as a Napoleon impersonator? Plus, we ask, who would win a battlecraft gymnastics mashup competition between Napoleon and Simone Biles? And I personally would definitely tune in uh, for that. Also, we give you tips on how to make your own Napoleon at home. Uh, we have uh, advice from a leading historical figure modelling expert. Um, you can make a decent bicorn hat out of some old underwear and a coat hanger, apparently. Plus, we tell you how to divert electricity from your home circuit to bring your model Napoleon to life. You will, of course, need the bill payer's permission to do this, and you also need a live chicken and five gallons of vinegar. Don't ask. Just do it. Uh, that section in the bin. The fact you managed to get through a whole bit on Napoleon without mentioning Wellington once means you have to be hounded out of Britain and never to return. I think it's absolute disgrace. Uh, Played by Rupert Everett in the film, apparently. Oh, which really? Would be an interesting portrayal, having essentially um, someone who's uh, quite uh, quite well known for his sort of slightly flamboyant um, and and often I think he's played drag quite a lot. I'm wondering. I'm, I'm looking forward to the film enormously, but I think it would add a certain historical level to really annoy those people who fetishise your Churchills and your Wellingtons if he did turn up at Waterloo wearing Wellington boots and a dress. <laughs> I, I, I always think that the reason they don't go to full historical accuracy in film is that then, like, 80% of the film would be taken up with characters saying, you have horrible breath because no one has invented toothpaste yet. <laughs> <laughs> Top story uh, this week. San Francisco has been the centre of the world. Exciting times for you. NATO is your home city has hosted the APEC summit. Now, APEC, I think, is basically a global cartel that artificially fixes the price of aardvarks. But the the summit in um, <laughs> in San Francisco uh, this week, I mean, it's brought your city to a to a to a standstill, hasn't it? Have, have you enjoyed the, the the grand jamboree? 
it's uh, it so the Apex Summit, the the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, uh, has brought twenty thousand uh, diplomats and businessmen to the San Francisco Convention Center to plot the further plunder of uh, the world, and uh, and so we it, it has uh, totally jacked up traffic. Uh, everyone from here is staying away from downtown uh, unless you are going there either to uh, plot the aforementioned plunder of the world or <laughs> protest people doing that. Uh, one or the other. There's no other activities happening in San Francisco right now. Um, the city has... Uh, we're, we're excited to welcome the 20,000 delegates to the city uh, to part- enjoy the culture for which we're, we're famous, to try some of our uh, drugs. Um, and the fentanyl that people we've been overdosing on at record numbers. Um, there was uh, the, like you know, there's been all these news stories about it, um, the like the the decline of San Francisco. It's a failed city, homelessness, and uh, they managed to make all the homeless people disappear and clean the city. City and uh, and and people asked two questions. One is uh, why didn't we do that last month? Um, if you could just do that. And two is, where did you put the homeless people? Um, <laughs> so uh, I, we think that they're being fed to the APEC delegates. Um, All right. So our, because our mayor sort of has like a, like a case of Munchausen by, by proxy towards the city, where she sort of goes in cycles of like trying to destroy the city so that she can take credit for saving it. And, you know, we, we didn't want people to lose out. There was a Czech camera crew that was robbed at gunpoint So while they were filming. So that's, that's exciting. San Francisco, famous for our gays. We had a gay event called Gay Pack uh, <laughs> um, so that the delegates could come and um, enjoy the fisting that we invented. Um, I don't know why they called it Gay Pack when Pacific Rim was sitting right there. <laughs> Family show. Family show. Uh, we have people chaining themselves to delegates, getting arrested, not getting arrested, wishing they could get arrested because it's cold and wet and they want to go home and their butts are getting cold. Uh, so it's been an exciting week. So is that what they've been doing with the homeless people then? Is that how it works? That basically they've managed to turn them into protesters because that way they can be corralled into some sort of prison cell and kept warm. So that, you've managed to kill two problems with one, uh, with one fell swoop. That was sort of the genius of Occupy Wall Street, if you recall, is... Uh, we're not homeless. We're protesters. <laughs> so. I, I do like. I like the fact that a Czech um, uh, camera crew was uh, was robbed at gunpoint. I have to say, I've never been to San Francisco, but I've been to America uh, quite a lot. And I, I have to say, if I was robbed in America and it wasn't at gunpoint, I would feel shortchanged. <laughs> I, I feel it's only fair that firearms are involved at some point. And you can't, you can't come back and go, got mugs. What did he have? Just an attitude. I think that that could. <laughs> I was thinking that another story about the, the impact on the city. That there was a couple that was due to get married, found that their wedding venue was inside the summit security zone. Um, that's really <laughs> the last thing you want at a wedding is delegates at an international economic conference milling around. It just devalues the entire concept of making long-term promises and sounding like you actually mean them. I think that's a very inauspicious start to a. Uh, to a marriage it depends on what you registered for andy uh because if if your bridal registry included 
uh, trade-related intellectual property rights, um, <laughs> <laughs> you might have hit the jackpot. Uh, Elon Musk pulled out of his his planned uh, gig at the at the summit. The fictitious techpreneur and cartoon baddie had a, a schedule change apparently, and had to spend the afternoon stroking his white cat and fostering anti-Semitism instead. So I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not been all. But I, I do think that this this idea of you know solving the entire homeless problem. Uh, could be something that, that I mean, this this might be the big the big positive for the world to emerge from this summit, and we just need more global summits everywhere, all the time, and we will solve all street homelessness. It seems like that that solution has been staring us staring us in the face for. How, think, how's the world's homeless through protest and basically removing from the streets that way? Yeah, that is that well because obviously over here, I don't know if Nato, you, you followed this over here. It turns out homelessness in Britain is is a lifestyle oh, yes. choice, yeah. uh, according to our recently departed Home Secretary. <laughs> uh, and I've always thought, you know, pitching a tent at the Glastonbury Festival is a lifestyle choice. Pitching it on the high street, I've always felt <laughs> slightly less. Of, of a lifestyle choice and I don't know if you've seen uh, you may have seen our, our very famous um, ho- homeless lifestyle magazine the big issue featuring <laughs> uh, you know centrefolds of men on on you know various levels of uh, heroin overdose and a special supplement for park benches you can buy nearby <laughs> the British so way it, it turns out that you know I'm going to blow your minds do you know okay. how they they solved the homeless problem in San Francisco for the summit are you ready go on then they put them in homes oh. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow that worked in terms of the uh, the uh, the meeting between biden and uh, and xi so i mean a few slight moments of awkwardness for example when when biden um called president xi a, a dictator which um which apparently he doesn't like uh, very much. <laughs> Biden said he's a dictator in the sense that he's a guy who runs a country based on a form of government that is totally different from ours. Which, I mean, it's a bit of a... That's a slightly restricted definition of dictator. I, I love that Biden backpedaling on the dictator who's like, oh, he's, it's just different. You know, I don't mean <laughs> dictator in a bad way. Some of my best friends are dictators. <laughs> Uh, it's such a significant meeting that 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 uh, that the leaders of the United States and China met that that the world's largest superpower met with the United States. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I did like there was one quote saying that they agreed, and this was a, a huge step forward that they agreed to share military intelligence. And I I was kind of under the impression that they had actually been sharing military intelligence for many many decades now. It's just they didn't like to let each other know that that's what they were doing. <laughs> You've got you've got Trump, who basically is there calling anyone who doesn't vote for him vermin. I almost think that Biden saying that Xi might be a dictator is almost a term of endearment. <laughs> In uh, other American news, uh, there's been a highly entertaining um, squabble NATO, uh, which made Bernie Sanders. Uh, former presidential candidate, gets as cross as I think I've ever seen him be. And bearing in mind that his fundamental state of existence is being cross about the entire state of America and the planet. That was that was quite impressive. Just bring us up to date with the, uh, the, the, the squabble that provoked Bernie Sanders to get, I think, a repetitive gavel-banging injury. As I may have said before, Bernie Sanders is a 82-year-old, bald Jewish socialist grandpa who went to University of Chicago in 1962 which is also a description of my dad. Um, so, uh, 
<laughs> when people are like, oh, I really love Bernie Sanders, I'm like, I get it. My dad is cool too. <laughs> so, uh, but so it was, it was at a hearing of, the, there's a Senate committee that Sanders is the chair of. It's the Senate Health Education Labor Pensions Committee, a.k.a. the HELP Committee, because they mean well. <laughs> uh, and the title of the hearing was Standing Up Against Corporate Greed, How Unions Are Improving the Lives of Working Families. And the Republicans uh, on the committee couldn't have that. So Mark Wayne Mullen is a senator from, Republican senator from Oklahoma uh, who challenged the president of the Teamsters Union to a fight uh, during the <laughs> hearing. Uh, Sean O'Brien, Teamsters president. Um, and Sanders had to bang, repeatedly gavel to uh, call the he hearing back to order. I love the whole exchange because, uh, you know, uh, I guess Sean O'Brien had had tweeted at some point, you know, you're a punk anytime, anywhere. And Mullen uh, wanted to fight him and said, you know, stand your butt up right now. <laughs> and and O'Brien said, I will. Uh, and uh, and Sanders said, we're not fighting. We're here to talk about working families. <laughs> and uh, and so here's my favorite part is is Senator Sanders in attempting to redirect the scuffle said to Senator Mullen, this is a hearing. Sean O'Brien is the witness. Do you have a question for the witness? And then Mark Mullen said, you said any time, any place. This is a time and a place. <laughs> and Senator Sanders said, that's not a question. Um, <laughs> so then the, the dumbest thing about what Mullen did was he brought, he, he brandished color printouts of of Sean O'Brien's tweets. Uh, like he had had the presence of mind to print out in color. That is like some very much like OK Boomer energy, like not <laughs> understanding how the technology works, that you had to print out color copies of tweets in order to make a point. Uh, but here's the thing. Mark Wayne Mullen is a former MMA fighter. Not very successful one. He had five matches, I believe. Uh... Uh, but a former MMA fighter, nevertheless, Sean O'Brien, uh, uh, is a teamster from Boston and, uh, Alistair, I don't know if you know anything about teamsters or Boston, <laughs> but if you had to bet on a fight and your choice was a professional MMA biter, fighter or literally any teamster from Boston, you go with the teamster from Boston, you go with the teamster from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, I, I was driving up here tonight to do to do this and I listened to a couple of politics podcasts in the car and I listened to um, and I listened to the last bugle and uh, it struck me that actually the bugle was by far the most sensible one because <laughs> everything else is so utterly batshit crazy that it doesn't make any sense to do anything apart from comedy. I read that exchange, you know, Bernie Sanders in the middle banging his gavel while you stand your butt up, you stand your butt up, and him. I think Bernie Sanders said. The American public think little enough of us as it is. <laughs> He's got a point there. So, so you suggesting that these kind of exchanges are not high-level political discourse? Uh, Mullen, I don't <laughs> like thugs and bullies. O'Brien, I don't like you because you've just described yourself. Zing! Uh, and then they went on. Uh, went on to say, um, "Do not, O'Brien, do not point at me. That's disrespectful." Uh, Mullen, I don't care about respecting you at all. O'Brien. 
I don't respect you at all. I mean, this is... <laughs> we've mentioned Abraham Lincoln earlier on, and the great history of American rhetoric and you know, the back and forth between between politicians and, and political figures. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to see wh- where American political rhetoric can go from here. Uh, I mean, if this, you think Demo- Demosthenes... Did famously cured his stutter by chewing pebbles, whereas, of course, American Republicans now famously sort out their squabbles by taking the pebbles out and just chucking them at each other <laughs> across Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're probably not far off. The the <laughs> what I saw in a in a local zoo here in London that I used to take my kids to when they're about the age that your kids are now, Alistair, and uh, I was taking my kids around and a monkey. Uh, shat on its hand, ate some, and then threw it across the cage at another monkey. And that monkey is now a senator for Arizona, (laughs) which I think is important to remember. (laughs) NATO at a protest news now, and, well, it wouldn't be an episode of the Bugle featuring NATO Green if NATO had not been or wasn't currently on a protest. You did do one episode live from a picket line. Um... uh, you have uh, you've taken part in uh, taken part in what's been described as one of the largest acts of Jewish civil disobedience in Bay Area history. Um, uh, arguably bigger than when Moses uh, turned up with uh, a, a large number of people saying, oh, "I think we should have gone um, right rather than left." Um, but uh, so, what exactly <laughs> is this this huge act of Jewish disobedience? So, uh, so uh, hello, Alistair. Uh, good to meet you. I'm I'm uh, I, I stay in the streets. Uh, <laughs> Uh, with the people, um, and <laughs> I have gathered the, the the destruction of Gaza has come at great human cost, but none greater than the fact that I lost three percent of my followers on social media uh, <laughs> ah. due to my controversial and provocative stance of being unequivocally against killing children. Um, so that is a line too far. As a Jew, uh, it was been sobering in recent months to discover that I am in fact anti-Semitic. Um, uh, I have been informed that I'm an anti-Semite because uh, for using words, apartheid, occupation, genocide, war crime, fascist, context, anti-Zionism, colonialism, ceasefire, and morality. I've also been called anti-Semitic for not simultaneously in every utterance about anything, also (laughs) saying Israel has a right to exist and defend itself. I condemn Hamas in the events of 10-7, hostages, Yemen, Uyghur, Armenia, Kurds, Darfur, Kony 2012, and Sudan. Apparently, my controversial anti-killing of children views are secretly a dog whistle that I am knowingly doing to Nazis to invite them to kill me and my family. Uh, I am inciting violence against myself because I didn't realize that Jew haters the world over are in their layers waiting for the signal from an obscure left-wing Jewish community in San Francisco (laughs) to launch their attacks. so it's been very weird on my social media. Some people are legitimately upset about uh, about the the war, and some people have lost the plot. Like, did you know, Andy, that Hamas kills and beheads people? Uh, I'm against killing. I'm not more against beheading. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, like I'm not like, oh, they just bombed everybody to death. At least they weren't beheaded. Um, so uh, this past Monday night, I was one of 650 Jews who occupied the Oakland Federal Building to demand a ceasefire um, uh, for many hours, and it was a very Jewish action. Uh, 
isn't an anti-Semitic trope if it's just our personalities. <laughs> uh, like the protesters, there was a lot of anxiety. Like there was a lot of discussion about how to center ourselves and calm ourselves while people were chanting. Uh, there was a. Uh, uh, everybody, you know, there was a lot of like, did you bring snacks? Of course, Jews plan to bring the, enough food to the protest. <laughs> We're going to be there for a while. Do you have a snack? Do you want someone to get you a snack? Do you want us to bring you a snack? Do you have a layer? Are you going to be cold? Uh, do you have a, your allergy medication? There was, it was very uh, stereotypical. And, but I'm optimistic that the Palestinian peace movement is ultimately going to be successful because it's the only movement that has a signature scarf. Um, and I think you can't underestimate the power of, uh, of effective accessories. <laughs> but the thing that you don't realize about protesting and civil disobedience is that it's f***ing boring. <laughs> um, one thing you should know is that it's not difficult to overwhelm the police. If, if like, there are about 40 uh, Homeland Security police and 600 protesters. And in other protests, uh, like police overreact with violence and then they say after the fact that they feared for their lives. Not this time. I can say definitively <laughs> that when police are confronted by 600 Jews singing Lo Yisagoy and dancing the Hora, they're not afraid of anything. <laughs> Unless there's so many snacks, they're slightly afraid that their cholesterol might be in serious danger. <laughs> yeah, they were afraid of uh, uh, picking up some contact diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, calls for a ceasefire have, uh, well, caused massive fractures in the Labour Party here. I mean, Labour... Uh, must be getting jittery at this point uh, with a general election due in a year or so's time. And it does seem completely unlosable. And they are having to try and find ways to make <laughs> things more difficult for themselves um, in the traditional Labour Party manner. Eight shadow junior ministers have resigned after refusing to uh, back the party line on not calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Keir Starmer wants a humanitarian pause. Uh, before then unleashes the unleashing the forces of unhumanitarianism uh, again and uh, so eight um shadow junior ministers have resigned because they want a, a cease so it's essentially i mean there's a, it's lot a, to a large extent as we we talked about on the bugle before a semantic uh, arguments about uh, what ceasefire and what pause means um and it does seem a bit disappointing Andy, are you going to say it <laughs> that you're anti-semantic? <laughs> <laughs> In, uh, well, let's talk a bit more about uh, UK politics uh, now, Alistair. It's been a, well, a tumultuous week, uh, not just for the opposition, but for the government. Home Secretary Suella Braverman, mentioned earlier on, um, was sacked by uh, Interim Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. She then uh, issued a, a scathing resignation letter or departure letter, accusing Rishi Sunak of uh, betrayal. Um, uh, Bravman, much fated by the right wing of the Tory party for being consistently even more wrong than all the other cabinet ministers uh, and doing so <laughs> um, more provocatively and divisively. And uh, she reacted to being fired with all the restraint, diplomacy and sensitivity we've come to expect from her time in cabinet, chundering out a furious letter that said in several hundred words what she clearly meant to say to Sunak in four letters, one vowel and three <laughs> consonants. Um, it's, uh, I mean, the, the bizarre thing about Suella Braverman being fired is not so much her being fired now, because she's been fired uh, previously and then reappointed within a week uh, last time. I think she, I don't know, I've lost slightly lost count of the number of times she's been she's been fired. But the fact that she is 
in politics at all i mean something's gone wrong has, has it not Alistair, Something, something's gone Something's gone horribly wrong. I mean, I particularly like the fact that the Conservatives are meant to be the party of law and order. And she was kicked out, stroked, resigned, stroked, sacked by the least successful Prime Minister in British history. <laughs> and six days later, she was back in one of the great offices of state. And you do think, I thought the punishment should fit the crime. I thought that was one of your sort of shorts. <laughs> Um, but no, no, let her back in six days later. I mean, she is astonishing having achieved, um, I don't know if, Nato, you're aware of her, 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 the previous incumbent of the role, um, Pretty Patel, uh, who I was under the impression was the most evil woman on the planet. And Suella literally was like, hold my latte. Um, and has, uh, it's, it, but it's of a piece uh, with, with what we were saying about uh, the cage fighting Americans, um, that we're now purely in the realms of fantasy. And Suella Braverman, I mean, the lifestyle choices thing, there's, she is, she's a populist who seems also to have massively overestimated her own popularity. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, I think unpopulist un is the term, I think, that should yeah, be well, used. Unpopulist, most I think, because I don't, and she's, you know, there's that kind of widget, oh, she's just saying what people are thinking. And you think, <laughs> God, if this is really what people are thinking, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. <laughs> it's absolutely abhorrent. Well, and she said in, in, in this resignation uh, letter, um, she said, I may not have always found the right words. That is a little bit of self-knowledge. <laughs> but I've always striven to give voice to the quiet majority that supported us in 2019. Well, a two, couple of things to pick up there in the two-word term, quiet majority. The, the, the kind of people that Suella Braverman speaks for are the least quiet people. in the. They generally scream, yes. often from within a weekly newspaper <laughs> column. And um, also, it's not a majority. I mean, in that 2019 election, 14 million people voted for Boris Johnson's Conservatives, which is a lot of votes by historic standards in a British election, but not a majority. It was 43% of people who voted, 30% of people who could have voted, and around about 20% of all people in the country. So, I mean, that, that's classic Braverman for me, to use two words and for them both to be fundamentally wrong. Absolutely wrong that the quiet majority is in fact the hysterical minority. <laughs> it, it is literally, you have to think the opposite. I mean, the whole thing about this Rwanda scheme is that they were told that it was against all... It's not just oh, you can't do this. It's against all our international obligations and now they've got this idea that they're going to rewrite a treaty that's going to change it. They knew... They knew years ago that this wasn't going to work. It wasn't Braverman's policy. It wasn't Sunak's policy. Yet they, they nailed their colours to this particularly unpleasant mast in order to... Sh and this is the thing that really gets you. In order to shift 200 migrants... <laughs> Uh, this is not a serious policy on any level apart from it within the pages of the Daily Mail, you know, hysterical minority um, area. But what, what I did notice, I don't know if you saw it today, Andy, in The Telegraph, uh, the, that uh, Suella Braverman has introduced a five-point plan to get the Rwanda deal over the line. And, and you do think if only she'd recently been occupying one of the great offices <laughs> of state that would have given her the power yeah. to achieve that. Well. Upon such threads, Alistair. Can I can I ask a question? Yep. Uh, so I'm I'm trying to to brush up on the what's happening here, and am I understanding correctly that the what's the, what has been called the Rwanda scheme was a plan to deport migrants away from the UK to a location most known for genocide, <laughs> and they're yes, surprised that that was determined to have humanitarian problems. Uh, yes. Did I miss something? No, no. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. No, that's you could pretty have, much it. Yeah, you could have added a couple of things to it. Um, basically, these are people that we say we don't have 
uh, room and space and capacity form, we're sending them to a country that is more densely populated and considerably less well off than the United Kingdom. So you can throw that in. The, the Supreme Court rejected the uh, the policy this week um, uh, as unlawful. Um, which is a kind of you know legal term. They could have gone with unhinged, unenforceable, unjustifiable, unaffordable, and unfathomable. The five U's of modern Conservative Party policy making. Uh, what's most frustrating, as you say, it's it's is that the time, money, and effort splurged on this policy could, if I've done my calculations right, have paid for and produced any number of alternative solutions to the global migration crisis. Now, as I've said before, we in Britain have to take the global migration crisis particularly seriously because of all global refugees and other asylum grants, approximately 99.94% end up here in Britain, if you only count the ones <laughs> who end up here in Britain. So, I mean, it does affect us disproportionately <laughs> to all other countries. Um, so, But the amount of money they've spent on this Rwanda policy, they could have built spring-loaded rebound cliffs to replace the white cliffs of Dover to then just twang people back in the direction from whence they came. They could have spent it on a giant space hologram of Suella Bravman uh, saying the words, are you sure you want to move here? Uh, we could have built a moat uh, to go with our current moat, or we could have installed giant space <laughs> magnets that detect people with an insufficient level of inherent potential Britishness, slurp them up and plonk them somewhere in foreignania, um, or the rest of the world as it's also known. Or we could have just just, just hired, <laughs> hired more sharks, um, bigger ones, like the ones we used to uh, have uh, to defend our shores until we joined the EU, and they made us replace the sharks with baggage. Um, which got very soggy very quickly. So, I mean, so much time and effort and money has been wasted on this obviously unneeded... Uh, it, it, the wrong solution to a, a, a you know, a, a, clearly a, a massive, gl intractable global crisis. And we, we oh, it drives me mad, the, well, the narrowness of the way that uh, our politics approaches it. It, it, it's happening all over foreignania and that is a word that I am going to be taking from this podcast and enjoying tremendously to basically signify anything outside uh, the coast of Britain is foreignania although I think Wales and Scotland should probably be included um, and, and certainly part, parts of Cornwall but um, I I think that you're absolutely right it's so paid again we come back to the absolute post post truth it's so patently a ridiculous i mean they could have genuinely i mean the jokes that you provide there are absolutely lovely but they genuinely could have provided a luxury hotel built for each asylum seeker they're planning to send for the money they've spent 140 million and they haven't sent a single uh, asylum seeker and i do think it's quite like the 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 rationale behind the Rwanda scheme is apparently that the idea of being deported to Rwanda would be uh, would be enough to make people too scared to travel to Britain. So they, it was a deterrent. And yet, at the same time, they were keen to insist that Rwanda was a simply delightful place to be <laughs> deported to, and frankly, the holiday destination of choice for anyone with any taste. And those two things cannot sit in the same mind, especially as NATO says, if you say to 99% of the world, uh, Rwanda, first word association, Rwanda, what's the first thing? Genocide. So it's not really somewhere that you want to go to, either by choice or deportation. As a result of Braverman being sacked, there was a cabinet reshuffle. And I never thought I'd say these words, but David Cameron is back in f***ing cabinet. And um, <laughs> I think f***ing cabinet is now how it is officially known uh, after what's happened in, in, in recent years. Now, it's been described 
as one of the great political comebacks. Now, I, I really want to pick up on this use of the term comeback. Now, a comeback is someone who's worked their way back from retirement or obscurity. They've earned their place back through achievement or rehoned their skills to enable another shot at success. In David Cameron's case, what he did to earn his comeback was sit around doing absolutely f call apart from some shonky lobbying <laughs> some corporate freeloading and just sitting back and watching the chaos he bequeathed of the nation unfold and now he he is this is not a comeback i, re I read that he was in a shed andy yes very much like me yeah i mean basically i mean, was, I mean since he uh, jumped into the first lifeboat after ramming rms brexit hanick snout first into that iceberg um <laughs> I mean, it's basically, I mean, he hasn't been very invisible in, in public uh, life. And this is the weird thing about it. I can't understand Rishi Sunak's logic thinking, oh, I'll tell you what we need to get those wavering voters back is David f***ing Cameron. I mean, what voter is going to think, oh, Cameron's back? That changes everything. The thing with Cameron is he left office massively unpopular uh, with people who were against Brexit and massively unpopular with people who were in favour of Brexit. And also, he's not an MP uh, because he, as I said, flounced out of politics, both wrongly because he had a duty to sort out his own mess and rightly because we needed to be rid of him, um, a, a kind of sh his resignation, and he flounced out after the Brexit referendum. So to get him in Cabinet, he had to be made an instant Lord um, and thus given an eternal seat in Parliament, and uh, if you want, alongside the likes of uh, former Boris Johnson Special Advisor Charlotte Owen, aged 30, who's now in Parliament for life for having rendered the nation the formidable service of a couple of years saying yes, boss, to an egomaniac. And for our special competition this week, uh, Buglers, you need to explain why that is a just, sensible and democratic system without using the words absolute f***ing travesty, putrid parody of a political system, or I thought we fought three f***ing world wars to save our democracy, too hot, one cold. Uh, do send your answers in on the nearest available pigeon. Sport and the non-existence of God news now, and uh, <laughs> two two things I'm really into. To be honest, this is uh, uh, the American football legend Megan Rapinoe, who's uh, retiring, is facing um, has been criticised after getting injured in her final match. She had to leave the field after six minutes after injuring her Achilles, and said uh, afterwards that this was proof that God does not exist. Now. <laughs> this is i mean this is a, a a fascinating story because i mean it, it gets to the very heart of what it is to be alive a because sport is the greatest thing <laughs> humans have ever invented and b because ever since that famous day in what was it 4004 bc when adam found himself unexpectedly existing and said who am i what year is it and how did i get here and an opportunistic bearded guy in a cloud said hey bud i just made you uh, and uh, do mind those dangly bits i probably should have popped them on the inside for both logistical and aesthetic reasons ever since then <laughs> people have been searching for proof uh, of the existence or non-existence of god and or gods thus far the most conclusive proof offered in favor of God's existence is the number of athletes who thank God when they win, minus the number of athletes who blame God when they lose, suggesting that God <laughs> A, exists, B, likes sport, and C, really hates losing. Uh, the main proof that God does not exist, on the other hand, includes pretty much everything that's ever happened in history, dementia, wasps, and the results of the 1954 and 1974 Football World Cup finals. And indeed, football may now have provided that clinching evidence that could see bishops, imams, and rabbis, and other priests from all the different religions just quitting their posts in droves 
because in the, the final match of a phenomenal uh, career, uh, Rapinoe was forced off by an Achilles injury, as I said in the first few minutes. Not quite such a serious Achilles injury as Achilles himself suffered in the famous <laughs> Troy versus Greece United match back in the mythical day. But serious enough for Rapinoe, one of the most influential sports people of her time, to cite the injury as the final nail in the pumpkin of theistic belief. Um, Piers Morgan whose career many prominent theologians have claimed also is incontrovertible evidence that we live in a godless universe, claimed that um, <laughs> her injury was in fact proof that God does exist and accused Rapino of, brace yourselves, irony fans, being arrogant, self-promoting prima donna. Um, so we're still waiting for verdicts from the world's religious leaders on whether Rapino's injury is or isn't proof of God's existence or indeed of God's misogyny and homophobia, of which, to be fair, there's a weighty body of historical evidence, um, or merely God's <laughs> opposition to unnatural hair colours. Uh, what, what did you guys uh, make of it? I don't know, if, you know where you stand on whether or not God exists, but, I mean, if he was to, um, you know, sort of prove his existence or otherwise, um, and, I mean, he could be in deep cover and trying to make people think he doesn't exist by injuring uh, Megan Rapinoe. I mean, is this the way that he'd do it? I have to say, in this situation, it does seem that she was joking. Oh, yeah, and oh. there has been a phenomenal sense of humour <laughs> failure from everyone. Who would have thought Piers Morgan would grab the wrong end of the stick just to make some sort of controversy? And she did. She snapped her Achilles. And of course, this being the, the world of absolute literal response where tone is missing from any <laughs> reportage, she has in fact denied the existence of a theistic universe. And I'm not quite sure she did. I think she was just a bit pissed off. Well, you say that, Alistair, but this is 2023. <laughs> one of our fundamental human rights enshrined in the 21st century social media convention that has replaced all other previous form uh, kind of uh, guidelines for how humans should behave that we can take everything that some people say completely literally whilst excusing everything that other people say on the grounds that they didn't really mean it depending <laughs> on whether or not we agree with them so that's absolutely that's the world we live in and that is proof that god exists <laughs> That brings us to the end of this week's uh, Bugle. Thank you very much for listening. It's plugs time. Uh, Alistair, you've got, uh, you've got a show coming up in London. I have. I'm on tour at the moment with my uh, my show Woke in Progress, uh, entitled Woke in Progress, specifically to annoy my mother, uh, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but I've been um, I've been on tour for a little while. It goes on into December. But the big date coming up is November the 28th at the Comedy Store, um, and sales are looking good. But there, it's quite a big venue, and uh, so I still have plenty of tickets left to sell. Uh, tickets uh, for 28th of November at the Comedy Store at www.alistabarry.com. NATO, plug away. Uh, well, Buglers, if you're in San Francisco and this comes out on Saturday, Saturday night I'm at the San Francisco Punchline. Uh, in January, I will be, uh, I have a few shows for SF Sketchfest, uh, a political stand up show, and a live podcast of The Bituation Room. Uh, and, uh, and then in February, I'll be on tour in Portland, Oregon, uh, with an away date. Check me out there. Uh, very important dates to alert you to buglers we are on tour uh, next year in march uh, various uh, places around um the united kingdom um chris have you got the list of i haven't got the list in front of me uh, well andy <laughs> listeners can go to the buglepodcast.com forward slash live and see for their Themselves. All right, there. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, also, uh, if uh, you want to uh, help keep this show free, flourishing, and independent, do join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme. 
Uh, details on the Bugle website. And if you join as a premium level voluntary subscriber, you will get exclusive subscriber only access to the new monthly Ask Andy show when I answer all or some of your questions. Uh, until next week, goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.